Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, you guys ready to study? You ready to, to learn? Okay, so 2 Corinthians 4, go ahead and go there. If you got your Bibles, that's like, I like to hear that paper flipping. Why? Because paper Bibles don't give notifications. You can't check Facebook on a paper Bible. We'll throw it up on screen if you don't have um, a way to read um, uh, as we read along, so it'll be up on screen. But just a, a quick premise before we get in here, a little laying of the foundation. We're currently reading through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. It will take us up till about Thanksgiving, and then in December we'll start our Advent series. Um, last week, Paul left off in chapter two and three, giving us imagery that explained his view of ministry and Christianity. He's essentially contrasting his critics' view with his view of what it means to be a Christian and follow God and do ministry. Uh, there's a stark contrast and he starts this argument around chapter three and he's gonna continue all the way up to the end of six, beginning of seven. So that's where we left off. He was discussing his view of ministry and why it's different than his critics. And he's gonna be uh, kind of peppering in lots of different imagery this week. He just continues to build on. The thing you gotta understand about Paul is that as he's writing, he'll introduce a concept and and then use that to build on this other concept. And so Paul's not the kind of guy you wanna put bumper sticker verses on. You don't wanna just rip one verse out of Paul, something that he wrote and be like, yeah, this is what he meant. Because the dude takes like four chapters to build his argument. And so if you're gonna understand Paul's writings, and, and I would argue the Bible as a whole, you have to read it holistically. You have to read more than a few verses at a time. You gotta read chapters. You gotta understand the context. You gotta start at the beginning and build on things because that's what Paul's doing. He's not just throwing these ideas out. And if you don't build on these ideas and read his stuff in context, then you're gonna, you're gonna be way out in left field um, confused about what he's talking about because what he's talking about, he started building two chapters earlier. And that's that's the reason why we're reading through this the way we are. So let's pick up in chapter four. We're gonna to go to verse one. So Paul likes these connector words. He says, therefore, why is that there? Because he's connecting the idea at the end of three with this new idea that we have in four. And when he wrote this letter, there were no chapters and verses, it was just a letter. So our breaks that we put in here help us reference where we start and where we stop and ideas, but in his writing, a lot of these are connecting. So when he says therefore, he's gonna connect this idea with what he left last week. And what he left last week were these thoughts about light and staring at Jesus. That's where we paused last week. The value of staring at Jesus receiving the glory of staring at Jesus, similar to how Moses went up on the mountain and spent 40 days in the presence of God and then came down, his face was so bright, he had to cover it in the midst of the Israelites because the glory was so powerful. That's the role of a Christian. We're supposed to be staring at Jesus. We get illuminated and transformed by what we see and then we go around and let that light shine in dark areas around the world. So that's, he's building on that. So verse four, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning 
or to tamper with God's word. That's really important. I'm gonna read again because it was so good. We have, so what he's saying is because we stare at Jesus, because we're being transformed by what we see, we have started to refuse making a practice of cunning. I'll go back to, to, to verse, two, verse two. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Why, Paul? Why you just renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways? Because he's staring at Jesus and Jesus is transforming him. Transforming him. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Why, Paul? Because you're staring at Jesus and you're being transformed by what you see. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's pause right there and let's reflect, let's dissect what he's talking about. As I said earlier, he's connecting these ideas from chapter three, the main idea being the role, the primary role of a Christian is to spend your life staring at Jesus, to behold his glory, to be in awe of who he is. Why do we stare at Jesus and not stare at the things of this world? Because the things of this world, when you stare at them, have a way of gripping your heart and pulling your affections and your tension, attention towards them. But when you stare at Jesus, your affections are stirred for him and your affections are, are motivated by the things that he likes. You start hating the things that he hates and liking the things that he likes and you are completely transformed just by staring at Jesus and letting him shift and modify and change your affections. When you do that, what happens, according to Paul, is that you start this practice of, um, of renouncing disgraceful, underhanded ways. You start, according to Paul, when you stare at Jesus, making a practice of refusing to um, work in a life of cunning or manipulation, and you refuse to tamper with the word of God. Now that is very interesting. What I wanna do for a second is I wanna take what he's saying and let's reverse engineer it, okay? So if Paul is saying, I stare at Jesus and then these things happen. I stare at Jesus and I, I am motivated to not tamper with God's word. Let's work that backwards. If somebody is making a practice of being deceitful, if somebody is making a practice of living a cunning lifestyle, if people love manipulating God's word, does it mean that they are not staring at Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what he means. And this is the beauty of the way Paul writes. He says, if X is true, then you get Y. If this thing is accurate, then you also get this. But the, prob the, the solution or the, the, the word problem, whatever you wanna say, works backwards. If this is also true, it's because this is not true. Now, why is that important for us? 
Well, it's important for us because Paul's not just talking about ministry, he's talking about people in general. This is a healthy litmus test for you to be able to judge the kind of people that you come in contact, not just church leaders. Absolutely church leaders, absolutely pastors, ministries, but down to business practices, to friends, to people in your family who are close to you. If you find on a regular basis people who make a habit of practicing manipulation in their life, if you find folks um, who love to tamper and manipulate God's word to, to sift and suit, suit their purposes, then what you can almost with 100% certainty um, assume is that they are not staring at Jesus. It doesn't matter how much they like talking about Jesus, if they make a practice of manipulating his words, they don't love Jesus as much as they're convincing you that he, they do. Well, that's interesting, that's, that's helpful because it gives us a test to be able to know what a person is all about. The idea being you can tell a lot about a, per, a person's personal prayer life and maturity in walking with Christ by examining their outward lifestyle. Paul is making a case by examining his critics that you can't simultaneously be all about yourself and love Jesus with your whole heart. The two do not mix. Because the more you, if you genuinely love Jesus, guess what you love less? Yourself, even unto death. So Paul is saying, as a Christian living in this world, how can you tell if somebody's actually got um, um, weight behind the stuff that they like to talk about on a regular basis? Every time I get around this person, they love talking about God. They love looking like they love God. How do I know if deep down in their heart all this outward expression matches what's inside? Paul would say, I just examine their life. I've made a practice not to practice cunning and manipulation. I've made a practice not to manipulate God's word. And if I come across people that do, it is a revelation to me that that is not the kind of person that I want to invest in on a long-term basis because they're not what I'm about. They're about themselves and not Jesus who I've given my life for. Make sense? Now that builds in the next half from like four down. He talks about um, this idea that Christians should look at Jesus and let the glory of the Lord shine through them. But this concept might be confusing to some people. He says in verse three, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So this way of living that I've decided to do when I look at Jesus and I don't wanna be about these other things, this may be confusing to some people who are still about these things. And so they're gonna come at me and say, well, uh, you're not really about the gospel because you don't do things the way that I do. And Paul's argument is the reason why you can't see that this is the byproduct of staring at Jesus is because you're not staring at Jesus. Here's the thing about people who love to live um, uh, in uh, uh, tampering with God's word or living um, in underhanded ways. They're convinced that other people love to tamper with God's word and live in underhanded ways. Manipulators are convinced that everybody manipulates and that's their justification for continuing to manipulate. 
So don't expect a manipulator to understand why staring at Jesus transforms you when they're not staring at Jesus. They're convinced that everybody in the world that does this, pastors who love manipulating God's word to suit their own purposes and build their own personal earthly ministries, assume that every pastor does that and it gives them a pass to continue or anytime they're confronted with the reality that there's some conviction, I shouldn't be doing this. No, I think it's probably okay because everybody does this. No, not everybody does that. And you should stop doing that. That's Paul's argument. His critics are doing that and Paul is using his own life as an example to expose how that is a wrong way of thinking. But you're gonna constantly run up against people who just say, all right, I heard you explain all of that, but I still don't get it. Why don't they get it? Why can two people sit in the same service and listen to the same sermon and one person walk away and say, that changes everything. I've gotta go home and repent and rearrange some things and change where my money's going and rearrange my calendar. And one person stands up and says, well, what do you guys want for lunch? Why is that? Because there are some people who make a practice of staring at Jesus, and when he speaks, they know that I'd rather hear that voice than my own inner voice telling me what is right and what is wrong. And there are some people who are just convinced that I know what's best. No one's gonna tell me what is wrong in my life, not even Jesus. And I can live the religious cycle and convince myself that I'm not that bad because probably everybody acts like me on the inside. Cynical, people think everybody is cynical. You follow? All right, let's continue. Paul's trying to tell us there's a simplicity in following the gospel that, that's just, it's lost on people who don't know what it feels like to not have a guilty conscience. So verse seven, let's go there. But we have this treasure. So that, that but connects the uh, scriptures before that. So he's building this idea. He's like, oh, we got all these people who think that the treasures of God are this one thing, but they're not. We've got this treasure in Christ. We've got this thing that is most valuable. And guess what? It's not us. So he's contrasting ministry and Christianity again, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, this, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we'll come back to that in a minute, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
All right, so I told you Paul loves metaphors. He just introduced two new ones, but he hasn't shifted the subject matter. We're still talking about the same thing. He's still talking about ministry. He's still talking about the Christian experience, the difference between true, real people who love looking at Jesus and people who like looking like they look at Jesus. Critics of the people who are the authentic, real deal disciples and those who are in it for a good business opportunity. So he's still contrasting, same theme, but he introduces these two new metaphors. The first one being um, treasures in jars of clay, and the second one, maybe it's a little less than a metaphor, it's more of a quote of a scripture from Psalms, um, and it's when he says, I believed and I spoke. So let's, uh, let's dissect the first one, where he says, like treasures in jars of clay. So what Paul is saying is that ministry in Christianity is um, it's like, um, f- it's like fragile clay pots that hold valuable treasure. What Christ did in his people is most like putting your pirate's treasure in a fragile clay pot. Now that doesn't seem like a very smart idea, right? If you've got treasure, you put it in a chest, you lock it and you bury it and you mark it on a map with an X. That's what you do with treasure. You don't want it just sitting out so it's exposed to the weather or some kid who throws rocks and breaks a clay pot. You don't want people seeing the treasure, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus made a decision to put the treasure of heaven, the Holy Spirit, the inheritance of the saints in the broken, weak vessels that we know as mankind. So when Paul says the thing about Christianity is that God puts the treasure in jars of clay, what he's saying is God puts his most treasured things in the most fragile containers. Now the question we should ask ourselves is why? That seems unwise, but Paul is arguing when he gets into the next metaphor or the quote from Psalms, that it's actually the most brilliant thing that God has done. And the reason why is because when you put treasure inside weak clay vessels, what you're telling the world on a regular basis is the treasure is not the vessel. It's inside the vessel. Why does God allow his people to be um, uh, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair? Why let us experience this hardship to remind the world that the treasure is not you, it's in you. He allows the world to see his people broken so the world doesn't look at Marshall and say, that guy can save me. If I could just get to his church and listen to him talk about Jesus, then I'd be okay. Look, when Jesus finally calls me home, all of you, you're gonna be okay. You don't need me, you need Jesus. You don't even need your spouse, you need Jesus. You don't need your job title, you need Jesus. You don't need a full savings account to hit retirement at 65, you need Jesus. That's what you need above everything else and God reminds you and the world that by putting the most valuable thing in the most fragile containers. It would be like us getting a letter in the mail and looking at it and thinking, man, this envelope must be the letter. That's foolish. No, the the good stuff's inside. That's just an old stamp 
Rip that thing open and get inside and read what's inside. It would be like um, um, getting a present on Christmas Day and thinking, oh, thank you for this present. And then taking this wrapped box and like putting it on, on your mantle. And then for the rest of your life, you just walk by. That was such a nice gift. No, no, no. Get, look inside of it. The present, that wrapping paper, that's not the present. That fragile thing that the moment you just kind of rip the corner, it just kind of all falls apart. That cheap tape that you buy at Walmart that won't even keep the, the box closed, that's not the present. The present's inside it. Get inside that thing and, and see what the treasure actually is. That's the reason why Paul is reminding the people that God does this very unique thing by putting the most treasured, valuable things of the kingdom of God in fragile containers. It's the reason why he allows us to be afflicted, persecuted, struck down, but not destroyed. The hardship on the vessel reminds the vessel, you're not the treasure. And the fact that you are a weak vessel reminds the world, he's not the treasure. It's a, um, it's a pride check. And you may be good at some things, but you're not the treasure and the hope of the world reminding your soul that the world doesn't revolve around you. That's a good practice, do it on a regular basis. So then he goes into this other uh, metaphor-ish, he kind of quotes, he quotes um, Psalm 116 when he says, I believed and I spoke. So this quote from Psalm 116, um, it was the psalmist um, at the very beginning describing um, great affliction on his life. And he uses words like, I felt like I was in the snares of death. I was in distress and anguish. And then in the middle of Psalm 116, you get a little bit closer or you get a little farther down uh, and the psalmist starts talking about, he shifts from his own personal anguish and the stuff going in his life and he starts switching um, the language and says, but then I looked at the Lord. And then I experienced his sweet salvation and his sweet, sweet um, reconciliation. The Lord saved me. I had this anguish, but man, I looked at Jesus and then there was this sweet salvation. And you know what it did when I, when I, when I, when I saw that? When I experienced the comparison between the, 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 the garbage that is offered by this world and the sweetness of Jesus, you know what it did? It made me praise. It opened my mouth and made me start shouting unto God. I can't get it enough of Jesus because if he's the kind of guy who will take my mess and make it this beautiful, then he's the only one who gets my affection and my attention. So what Paul is saying, I've been through that experience. When I was in Ephesus and I got kicked out because of all the riots, I was afraid for my own personal life, but in the middle of that anguish and persecution, I finally understood what the psalmist was talking about. I identified with that anguish that coming to the edge of your own life and then realizing, man, my, my, my life's not even worth holding on to. You know what's more beautiful than my own life? Jesus. Well, praise God, that's a pretty good thing to realize that the stuff in this world that I wanna hold on to but feels like I'm holding on to a bar of soap and constantly slips out of my hand, it's not the stuff I needed anyway. The stuff that's most valuable is him. And I got, he's, I'm not even holding on to him, he's holding on to me. And he doesn't let go ever. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake. Praise Jesus. Cue up the music. Let's start worshiping. That's good news. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I finally understand what the psalmist is saying. And I want you to understand the same thing because this cycle, it's not new. Every Christian should make this their regular practice. The moment things in your life don't go the way you thought they would, look at Jesus and start praising God. Now that seems like the most, like the most, the, the, the worst advice I could possibly give you. 
right? Because no one wants to hear in the middle of their suffering, just look at Jesus and praise the Lord. Nobody wants to hear that. But you know why? Because our souls, our flesh, we don't want to hear the truth. We want to hear that we're right. We want to to rally support for our suffering. We want people on our team to tell us, yeah, you're right. This is that bad. You know what you need to do? Here's what you should go do. That's what we want. We want cheerleaders to further the anguish. We want to live in it. We want to bathe in it. And Paul is saying, I tried that. I saw that. Jesus saved me from that. And now when I see when I get low, when, when the world starts pressing down, when I start thinking of all the things I should have done and the things that I didn't do, then all the people that I let down or all the wrong decisions, it overwhelms me and I feel like I'm drowning. But then I look at Jesus. And I look at how he treated people like Peter who spent three years with him. And then when he's being arrested, Peter says, I don't even know the guy. Jesus knew the depths of loneliness even farther than I understand them. And if he can get through it and love me, even when I'm not faithful, man, praise Jesus. I love him even more. I love him because I learned something about him in my anguish. You follow? Okay, let's go down and finish the end of uh, chapter four. Go to verse 16 through 18. All right, now this is kind of gonna be like, uh, there's a lot of verses in scripture that kind of act like a door hinge, right? Things, big ideas swing on this. He's doing this in 16, because if you don't understand 16 through 18, when we get to five, you're like, man, Paul, I don't know what you're talking about. You're out here talking about being naked, tents, houses. I don't understand any of this stuff. Being unclothed, what does that mean? Well, he's connecting the, the dots for us here. So let's read 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Lose heart in what? Lose heart in the process that the anguish is never going to leave. Things are going to increasingly get more and more difficult as you live here on earth. But the good news is that you don't have to live in the anguish. The anguish drives you to Jesus and and, it encourages your inner man and it grows you uh, spiritually. You, You become a stronger disciple by the outside things increasingly not going your way. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. All right, we got a new metaphor. The contrast between the outer self and the inner self. What's the outer self and the inner self? The outer self, it's this flesh. It's, it's me shaking your hand, it's the flesh and blood, it's the, it's the body part of who you are. The inner self, it's the spirit man. It's, it's your spirit, the inner side. So he's saying, though our outer self is wasting away, getting older, getting more gray hair, getting harder to get out of bed, you slept wrong and now you pulled your back out and you're out for a week, that's wasting away. Hey, good news, because your inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay then I'm okay a little more with getting older and my sight fading and not being able to do the things that I used to do because as this outer starts to waste away, the inner, I'm promised from the word of God, is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. 
As we look, verse 18, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul pivots from talking uh, uh, about this, um, this suffering. Uh, he pivots, and you kind of uses that as a, as a, as a pivot to, con- to transform uh, into this conversation about the outer and the inner self. All right, so we're talking a lot about out, outward affliction, and that can be tough on us, but it's okay, because as that increases, there's this other thing going on behind the scenes that's good for you. The outer stuff gets harder. You get older. Your body doesn't work the way it used to. Outer afflictions increase. Life is harder. Work is more difficult. Politics are more confusing. School is even harder. Everything piles on, but that's okay because the inner man, it's getting stronger and stronger and it's preparing you for the weight of eternal glory that's coming your way. That's good news. Praise Jesus, right? So we like to look at it. Well, how you doing? Not great. Well, praise God, because not great means in here is getting stronger every day. That's how Paul is teaching us to look at it. That's not how the world teaches you to look at it. The world teaches you, you know what you need? You need a vacation. You need to satisfy the flesh. You need to feed that flesh. You need to spend some money. You need to satisfy the flesh. Paul says the opposite. No, 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 no. You like that affliction. You want to lean into that because what it means is the internal inner man is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what we want. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is growing stronger. So for the Christian, as one deteriorates, the other starts growing stronger. That puts a higher value on the things that you can't see and the stuff you can't touch, like love. There's a much higher value in the kingdom of God on love. That's why the fruit of the Spirit are not stuff you can touch. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, those aren't the stuff you can grab a hold of. That's the unseen stuff that has more value in the kingdom of God. Not to mention the unseen stuff that's coming our way eternally from heaven's perspective, and that's where he's going next. And I told you, the five, one through five is gonna be confusing if you don't have that connection. What he's saying here is that the internal person, as it's starting to grow, puts a value on unseen things in eternal life. And the unseen things we can have a hope in, and that's where he introduces in chapter five. So Paul details our hope at the end of four in this unseen afterlife, the unseen things. We can put our hope in the value on these things and he dissects that next in chapter five, verse one through 10. So let's read that together. Second Corinthians five, one says, for we know that if the tent that as our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling, longing to put on our heavenly, heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. All right, you've already lost me. Uh, amen? It's hard, what are you talking about? I was following you and now we're talking about nakedness. I don't understand. Verse four, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, what? But that we would be further clothed 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now I'm gonna go down just a few more verses and then come back up and hopefully bring some clarity to what he's talking about. Because he hasn't shifted his, his uh, subject matter, he's just adding more imagery. Verse six, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, lots and lots of rich imagery. Let's get into it. So Paul is building on this concept of the unseen and he introduces these new metaphors to help you understand it. So essentially what he's saying is, I haven't switched the subject matter, I'm just gonna give you some more illustrations and metaphors to further help you understand how your hope is in things to come and not right here. What he does is he introduces this this concept of a tent. All right, now what is the tent? The tent is essentially our bodies. Do you remember at the end of verse four or chapter four, he was talking about the inner man and the outer man? He hasn't stopped talking about the inner man and the outer man. He's just introduced some new metaphors to further help us understand what he's talking about. So what he says is, we, our outer self is kind of, it's like a tent that we're living in, right? And our future body, the glorified body, what's coming for us is more like a house. Now who would rather live in a tent than a house? Some of you are like, yeah, I'd rather live in a tent than a house. But most of us would rather live in a house. A house described by Jesus as a mansion. I'm going to prepare for you a mansion. I wouldn't have said that I was gonna do this unless I was actually gonna do this. What was he talking about? Is he talking about an actual brick and mortar house in heaven? No, he's talking about your glorified bodies that are coming one day that are much better than the tent you're living in right now. Does that make sense? So he introduces the concept of tent by describing what your body is right now as more like a tent and a future body being more like a, a house, not made by hands. So we are currently living in this tent, but one day we will inherit this home, the glorified body. Now, where does that come from? Because we have to take just a slight detour to kind of understand. What happened, how do we get the glorified body? This is the first I'm hearing of this, Marshall. What is this glorified body you speak of? Because it sounds pretty good. Well, we're told, uh, you can go back and listen to the notes, you can download them, you can listen to it, but we're told in Titus 2, chapter 13, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 7, Jude, there's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, that sometime in the near future, Jesus is going to return to earth in a second coming. And when that happens, those who have died before us Their dead bodies will be raised up out of the ground. Their spirits who were in heaven come back with Jesus and in the twinkling of an eye, their bodies will be changed and they will be given an essentially a glorified new body that is fit for eternity. Okay? 
Those of us who are still living, let's imagine for the sake of argument that the rapture or that the second coming of Jesus happens right now. If those of us in this room who are still alive, we're told that the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have already passed away, they get to ascend and they, their spirits meet in the heavenlies with Jesus and their bodies are transformed to get a new glorified state. Then what will happen to us is we will be raptured. Our bodies will be caught up. Our clothes will be left here on earth. Don't need those anymore. We'll ascend up into heaven and we will then be given our glorified bodies, this home not made with hands. This is considered the second coming. This is also at the same event as the rapture, the resurrection. This is what was prophesied in these verses. And this is what Paul is talking about. Now, Paul's ultimate desire is to just do that. If Paul had his way, he, he says, I think what I would prefer to do is just go from this tent to my home immediately and not ever have to experience death. That's what I would love. I would love to not be naked or unclothed, is the words that he used, to describe what happens to his physical body when he dies. When you die as a Christian, your physical body goes into a grave and your spirit goes with Jesus. Immediately, the moment you die, your spirit's with Jesus and your body stays here on earth. And Paul describes that like being unclothed from your body or being naked from your body. And Paul says that's a thing that happens that if I got my way, I would prefer to just go in the rapture. I'll go from my tent to my new home and not have to live any period of time outside of a body. I'll just get my, just get my new body. Are you guys following with me? He's, he's tough to follow, but this is, this is what he's dissecting. So. If he, if he gets his own way, what he'd prefer is to not be unclothed, but to just get this new body. But then, um, well, I should probably go back and give you some reference point for that. Um, so this idea that uh, you're, when, when you die as, as a Christian, your spirit goes to heaven and is with Jesus and your body stays here. Where is that from? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he talks about it in the very next few verses. We'll cover it in just a second. Hebrews 12, 1. Um, when we talk about the great host of witnesses, all the spirits of the saints that came before us, they're watching us, they're cheering us on. Um, Luke 16, uh, 19 through 31, Jesus tells a parable um, about Lazarus. Um, and in that parable, there are people who are in heaven, there are people who uh, are, are in hell. Um, Luke 20, 23, 42, when he's talking to um, the person hanging on the cross, he says, you're gonna be with me today in paradise. That's not like a metaphorical today, it's today, today. So the, the, the sense being that as a Christian, your hope is that the moment you die, your body stays on her, here on earth, but your spirit is with Jesus in heaven. And it stays that way until his second coming. When his second coming comes and Jesus returns, your spirit comes back with Jesus and he raises your body from the dead just like his body was raised from the dead and you are given a new, transformed, glorified body just like Jesus got. And then following that is a resurrection where the rest of us, or not resurrection, a rapture, the rest of us who have not died, we ascend and then we get our glorified bodies. That's what Jesus is talking about. So Paul reveals his ultimate, well, I'll tell you what, let's go back and reread. So that, that seems like a stretch. Marshall, that's a lot of conjecture, right? I promise, this is not me. I've done lots of studies on this. Um, and. and You've got guys as far as like John Piper all the way to like N.T. Wright. The, the whole of Christianity, no matter what side you fall on, as far as like Reformed or Arminian, this is what most guys, this, this is what Christianity believes. That when you die, you go and you're with Jesus in heaven. 
All right, this is what Paul is dissecting. Let's read it one more time. So, for we know that if the tent, our body, is our earthly home, if it's destroyed, we've got a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That doesn't mean that your glorified body is just sitting in heaven. It means that when it comes, it's fit for eternity when heaven and earth come back together. For in this tent, our, our bodies, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Ah, oh, I want that glorified body. It'd be better than this old piece of bag of flesh that I have now. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. If I put on that glorified body, there's no point where I'm not wearing this and I never feel naked or unclothed. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be found unclothed, but that we would be further clothed with that new glorified body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Let's go on to verse six. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. This is the argument we were making before. If you're in the body right now here on earth, guess what? You're not with the Lord because Jesus rose from the dead and guess where he is now? He's in heaven. So if people tell you, I, I was praying last night and Jesus came to me, mm, that's not possible, man. Jesus would have had to get up off the throne and come to your bedroom last night. There's probably a vision. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. But Jesus, when he sat down, he hasn't gotten up and returned and, and moved anywhere, come back to earth until the second coming happens. You follow? So Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he's in heaven. So Paul says, if you're here on earth, he's not with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. But if you die, if you're absent in the body, you're present with the Lord. So for the Christian, there's only one or two places that you're existing. You're here on earth locked in this body or you're in heaven with Jesus. And all this precedes the time when he returns and gives us this glorified body. So eventually, we're gonna be transformed. But before then, some of us will pass. And I'll just tread as lightly as I can because a lot of, a, a lot of us, we have, we have lost loved ones here on earth, people that were dear to us, we love them. And if we had our way, we would have them with us right now. But the truth is, if we're gonna follow Paul's words, what Paul is telling us is it's far better to be with Jesus than locked here on this earth. I know you love them and you miss them, but they're with Jesus. That's far, infinitely greater than anything that we can imagine here on earth. And that's what Paul's argument is. Now, he kind of builds this from five on. So let's summarize what he's talking about here. Paul starts off with this idea that, look, as a, as a Christian, the first choice would be, man, I don't wanna die. I just wanna experience the rapture and receive my glorified body immediately. But if that's not the case, if that's not possible, Paul's second choice and the choice for a Christian is to just accept death and be with Jesus. Because being with Jesus is infinitely better than being here on earth anyway. But he summarizes at the very end with this idea that we must all appear before the judgment seat. Whether we're home or away, we must uh, have our aim to please him. He says, look, um, I don't really get a first and second choice. 
I'm just talking about things that are gonna happen. Ultimately, the only thing I'm accountable for is not what happens to me when I live or die or what's gonna happen sometime in the future. The only thing I'm really accountable for right now is the fact that I will be held accountable for everything I say and everything I do, good or bad. So rather than spending the rest of my life dwelling on what's gonna happen in the afterlife, I need to get about the business of building the kingdom right now because I will be held accountable for everything I say and do when that time finally comes. You follow? Hopefully. That's a lot. I get it. Let's finish with this. All of that, he starts with verse 11, therefore. What is that therefore? It's there for connecting the previous thoughts with this one. If all of those things are true, and the last thing he said being, we need to get about ministry, we need to stop worrying about the afterlife, we need to be comforted by what is coming and rest in knowing that that's coming our way. What do we need to be about right now? We need to be about building the Lord's work, doing his ministry, because we're gonna be held accountable at the judgment seat for everything we say do. Uh, uh, say and do good or bad. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that's interesting. So the awareness that there is a judgment coming for all of us for everything you say and do, it creates a sense of awareness and awe and fear for the Lord. We persuade others by what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Why am I telling you all this? So that you have a comfort and you have a way to respond to people who are more interested in the outward appearance than what God is doing at the heart level. For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If I know I'm gonna be held accountable one day for everything, the only thing I really wanna be about is the ministry of Jesus. I've concluded that this is what it's all about. That living might no longer be for myself, but for him. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us that same ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the reality that judgment is coming our way creates a serious awareness inside of us. So these words from Paul at the end of chapter five, they're meant to strike the church and us like a lightning bolt. If you call yourself a minister of the gospel, if you call yourself a Christian, then your only goal is this. Every other goal that you have in life has now been replaced with this one thing. This is what life as a Christian is all about. 
And the reality of that is a beautiful thing because when your life is all about one thing, most of the questions that you struggle with on a daily basis, they answer themselves. Should I do this? You don't even have to answer that because your commitment to Christ has already answered it for you. I'm all about Jesus. Is this, about, is this good for me? Well, I don't know. Is this a good investment? Well, I don't know. Is this about Jesus? No. Then don't do it. Living like Paul is encouraging Christians to live, helps you reconcile and answer most questions on a daily basis. You don't even have to struggle with coming to a conclusion on things because the fact that you have chose Jesus and you've been given the ambassadorship and the ministry of reconciliation, it answers everything in your life. There is now less anguish and more peace because you don't have to spend your time being overwhelmed with decisions. All the decisions are made because it's not your kingdom being built, it's his. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.